Yeah, this is a, a look. I I find it easier. Sure. Like I'm shouting. Um. Okay. So, um, I, I Yaka called me last night. She said Reverend Rubenstein said he's not coming. I was I was at a parent teacher conference. It was ten o'clock at night. She's like, can you do this today? I teach. I already taught two classes this morning. So I'm literally coming here on the fly. Okay. A word. I'm ready. I'm prepared. You know, in my heart and in my mind, always talk about the Holocaust. But um, you know, like what specific thing? I have no idea. Okay. But whatever. I have like some. You know, I have some presentations that I've made over the years, and I think it's easier to have like a, you know, a visual aid and and like a base to to work from. Um. So whatever. This was the one that I did for Joel last year. Um, on Yom HaShoah. Um, yeah, because we're gonna, we're, I'm not gonna really, like, we'll, we'll use it as a jump off point. You can't do this. Can't say the screen at all? When you turn the lights up, it's only not the middle. That one? <laughs> I'm only doing this though if you're all gonna not talk. Okay, this is not gonna work this way. Um, yeah, I, I I don't really remember what I'm doing here, so um. <laughs> For those on the recording, it's not a vain element of very class, it's a Holocaust speech class. Just making an announcement. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can be my pusher. Fine, Susanna. Okay. Just push the down arrow, I think. No. There. Okay. Um. Into the move. Actually, I think I have a quote. Okay, so last year, I um the theme I, every year I like choose what 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 the theme is. Okay, um, it's all Hashkafa practice. Okay, so um the theme last year was basically connections, um and how how different people. We we always have a um. A, uh, a a certain paradigm in Holocaust education, okay? The the details that we have about um, what it was like, what the experience was like, is always from survivors, right? So that actually takes away about 95% of the experiences of Jews in the Holocaust. Um, so I don't want to, I, I never wanted to sound like this is the Holocaust, like the good parts version, kind of, okay? Um, because there was no good parts. There were no good parts. But in my in my own, you know, chosen profession, um, I find that we have to study Holocaust with a purpose. We can't study Holocaust or anything, right? With, bless you, with, with the... Um, without having a, a masara, a purpose, because then it's possible to just fall into it. 
And that doesn't help anyone. That doesn't bring anything to the world. So for example, like 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 the videos of that, you know, that the animals of Hamas took on the day of the of um Simple Torah of October 7th, that you know, it, it, it doesn't do anyone any good to watch those. I hope you guys aren't I hope hope you hope you if if you you know if if you um were exposed to it, you know, then uh Bezat Hashem should uh everybody should have a healing from that. We all saw things that we didn't want to see. But just as a I guess as a as a parent, as a as a mother and as a mother, you know, as 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 not your mother, obviously, but like uh someone who cares about you and standing here and, and an educator here, um, I would, you know, I would I would very much caution against um ever purposely looking at those things. Um, because the evil was so predominant, it was the 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 the, the evil was co- you know covered up everything else and it's 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 impossible to see the good to see i mean I, I need to be very nuanced here right there was no good except that we're now fighting a war and that was the impetus in a way for a war war is not good but look where am israel is in terms of actors or you know people um feel, finding their strength right all yisurim are terrible except that they compel us to grow, right? All, all tragedies are terrible, um, except that sometimes we can make light in the aftermath, okay? So the Holocaust was a horrific, horrific, horrible black hole of evil. And within that horrific, horrific, horrible black hole of evil, there are points of, tiny points of light. And so what I find to be, helpful and beneficial is to study the Holocaust and to focus, you know, more on those points of light because, and has to tell that anyone should ever think that I'm like minimizing, you know, or, or, um, you know, only seeing the good, it's not true, but I find that, you know, to delve just into the blackness with no, without a life jacket is, um, is, it happens, you know, drowns the person. And, and, and that's not what we're here to do. Not what Hashem wants from us. He doesn't want us to drown in the sorrows and in the darkness and in the tragedies. He wants us to be propelled by them somehow. Okay? And the only way to do that is to look at them through the lens of, of, of Torah, of Kedusha, of, of, of humanity, of, um, of connection. Okay? So, hence this, uh, this, uh, this section, okay. So Hashem said it is not good for the human to be alone. Okay, it's a very, uh, very uh, famous passage from Bereshit. This is going to be a little bit of a surprise for me because I don't really remember what it, what what the what the uh, what the uh, order of things was. Um, okay, so Esh Kodesh, okay, Esh Kodesh. Those of you who uh, the PSX and Rebbe, okay, if you ever hear that name. Spelled lots of different ways, but this is one of the ways that it is spelled. Okay. Um, now is a town outside of Warsaw, but by the time the war started, he was already in Warsaw. Um, you guys have heard me say this a million times, but I'll say it again for anybody that wasn't here. Okay. The only way that we have the Ishkodesh is um, because there was a group in Warsaw led by a man named Emmanuel Ringelblum. Um, I don't think I, I don't think I have his picture on this on this 
pre um, presentation, but Anthony, you should know. Okay, we have a lot of gratitude towards him. Emmanuel Ringelblum. Um, Emmanuel Ringelblum led something called the Oinig Chavez Society. Okay, it was called, yeah, he called it that, Oinig Chavez. Okay, Oinig Chavez, it was, it was a code name. Oinig Chavez because people used to come to his house on, um, on Chavez. And um, he wasn't religious, but everybody was, you know, was a Jewish heir in, in Warsaw before the war, okay? Um, even though there were a lot of, there was a huge range of lots of different types of lifestyles. Um, but Emmanuel Ringelblum was um, a Jewish history teacher. So he was very like culturally Jewish, we'll call it, right? Um, anyway, what he said was as a historian, he said, we're living through historical times and we have to document what's happening. So he actually gave out like pieces of paper, notebooks. Um, he actually got, he collected money from um, America. Actually, the first two years of the war, America wasn't in the war. So it was neutral. It was it was things from America could actually arrive in Warsaw, even into the Warsaw Ghetto, which is like a crazy thing. Lots of weird phenomenon that doesn't make sense during World War II. Okay, but so he actually was able to get from the like the Joint Distribution Committee, and he he gave out notebooks and pens. Essentially, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm simplifying. Okay, but basically, he recruited people to take notes, um, to interview people. He had he had he, it was very organized. He had like uh, there were women that worked with him. One one of them was named Raphael Auerbach. He would go and she would collect data about women, like what was happening with women in the Warsaw Ghetto. Okay, um, one of them was named was uh, Rabbi Shimon Huberband. Okay, Rabbi Shimon Huberband was um, in charge of like religious life documentation. Okay, he he basically brought like stories of Kiddush Hashem. He brought stories of how how communities were still like pulling together. About about trying to learn Torah, about yeshivas that were actually still um, learning in different times in different places, but in this is all like in the Warsaw Ghetto or in the um, immediate environments. And he collected that on that, and he brought and everybody brought their stuff every Shabbos to Emmanuel Ringelblum. Okay, and that's why this was called the Einig Shabbos Society. Um, and basically, what Emmanuel Ringelblum did with it was that he said, um, you know, we're not getting out of here anytime soon. Um, but even bless you, even if we all get killed, um, someday they're gonna like reuse this part of Warsaw. They're gonna rebuild. So what they did was they they buried their the writings. Um, they used uh, tin cans and milk jugs, um, and they buried in three different places in the Warsaw ghetto. Basically, in the summer of '42 and and two in the winter of '43. And um, out of those three groups of stuff that of things that were buried, we we found two. The first one was found in 1946. Emmanuel Ringelblum was killed. Um, she went rubbish. She went Huberband also. And um, and he and 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 uh, after the war, uh, basically there were there were there were I think four survivors from the Einik Shabbos Society, but only one person who knew actually where the stuff was buried. Um, and they went in 1946 as soon as they could after the war, and they basically tried to find it. And what they did was very interesting. You know, there was a there was a Warsaw ghetto uprising, okay, and then there was a Warsaw general uprising. So the whole city was destroyed. If you go to Warsaw today, it's it's brand new. There's like basically almost no um, buildings left from before World War II. And 
So what they said, they basically took an, a, a plan, like an old plan of the city, and they and they tried to figure out where they were standing. And what, what Rachel Auerbach said was, she said, we tried to find a hiding place that was off of a cellar, that was off of a basement, that was off of a building, that was off of a road that doesn't exist anymore. Like none of those things exist. So how do you find where this stuff is buried? They actually found one, they found the first batch, 10 tin boxes. A lot of it was water damaged and unusable, um, but they actually, it still, it still is being held in Warsaw in a, what's called the Jewish Historical Society, the Zip. And, and they're continuing to do research on it. Like we have new technology all the time. What was once like totally destroyed and unreadable, you can see that if there's like scratch marks or like indentations from using pen. So now we have the technology to like, you know, go over that with like a, you know, a certain kind of camera and sort of like rebuild the, the letter and, and try to like see what was actually written, which is very cool. Um, but 19, they tried to find the other two sections. They couldn't find them. In 1950, um, there was a, there was a, um, there was building going on, which is exactly what Emmanuel Ringelblum said. He said, they're going to rebuild the city. They're going to find our stuff. And then they're going to read it, and then they're going to know who the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto really were. He said, we cannot let the Nazis write our history. We have to write our own history. And so in 1950, there was construction, and they their shovel hit, you know, metal. And um, and they basically found two milk jugs filled with, and, and originally the Polish uh, construction workers, they were like, the Jews buried gold, you know, that was like that. And it was a bunch of moldy, wet paper. And um, and basically, well, the story that's that's told is that they wanted to throw it out, and there was a um, Vladek, the uh, foreman, said, "No, let's bring it to the." There's this like you know the Jewish Historical Society had just been formed that just just then, like a month earlier, something like that, and he said, "Let's just bring it to them," and uh, they brought it to them, and that's where the H. Kodesh was found. Okay, all the PS, all the writings from the PSS Rebbe that had not been published before World War II, which means everything except what was published yeah, that's it. Oh no, and Tobasa Right? Those are the two books that were published before World War II. And then everything else that we have is only due to Emmanuel Ringelblum and the um we used to think that it came through Shimon Huberband, but now we know that there was another person whose name I can't remember, um, who was who was in touch with uh, with the Princess and Rebbe and that he was that he brought there a museum in Poland with their letters. The jich, the jich, mm -hmm. that's the main thing that the jich has. It felt like this. The okay, I, I think I was there. Go there. Yeah, I think awesome. I was there because it's also very awesome. Yeah, yeah. So we have the H Kodesh, and the H Kodesh is a series of um, drachas that the piece of Rebbe, that's six of him, basically the only picture that exists. It's not even, it wasn't even a whole, whole picture. It's been like digitally. It was like three quarters of his face. So like the part that's like darker is kind of like a re it's like a digital imagining mm -hmm. of what the rest of his face looked like. Um, but anyway, he these are drushes that he gave in the Warsaw ghetto. So this is my it was one of my favorite ones. Um, I guess that's why I brought it that night. Um I'm not sure if we should look learn it right now. We should oh. Oh, Andy and Gab want to learn it. Okay, so we're gonna okay, so we can't have a piece of the codex, I guess, up on the board and not learn it. So goodbye. Yeah. Okay, so it's from Vayitra. Okay, it's from uh, Vayitra in 1940. This is a tiny piece of it. Okay, he says, 
Oh, so you all all, you all recognize these words, okay? The Kara Zelzet. Where do you say that? Kedusha. Okay. The Kara Zelzet Amar, right? Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Okay. So that whole thing, the Kara the Kara Zelzet Amar and Kadosh, 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 is from um, the vision of Yeshayahu. He saw. He went up. To, he had a vision. He went up to, in the in his vision. He went up to Shemayim and he saw Malachim standing. Right. That's how we stand with our feet together. Okay. Um, they were standing, they actually, there's like an idea that Malachim only has one leg, they stand straight on one leg, we put our two feet together so that it looks like one leg, okay, and we, and we say, um, and, and we repeat their words, okay, okay, so it says, Targumin, um, in all, in Targum Onkelos, it might be a Targum Yonatan, I can't remember, okay, one of the Targumim to, uh, to, uh, to Aramaic, it says that that's the tra the translation kara that they turn to one another or they call each other. It says umakablin deini dein. Okay, umakablin means what? They receive. Okay, they receive from one another. So that's the that's the translation of the kara. Not they call to one another, but that they receive from one another. Okay, so that so translation is always like a a nuance of a. It's always it's like a it's like a, a commentary. Okay, it helps us understand. So the Rebbe says, Kamosha Omrim, but Uva right? At the end of Davening, we say Uva and we say this, Karazel Zevimar, the Kabin Demi Dim, we say, okay? Um, it's at the end of Davening. The Itabatikune Zohar Akadash, it says in the Zohar, in that section of the Zohar, Shaha Jamalachim, the Kabin Demi Dim, Israel Garmin Lachem, Kad the Kabin Da, Ninda, Ben the Oraisa, Ben the Mamona, Ayensham. Okay, so it says in the in the Zohar, what do the Malachim get from one another? What do they receive from one another? So they get from one another um, something that Bnei Israel caused them to do this. Okay, they caused Bnei Israel caused them to get from one another. The Rebbe's going to explain it. This is just a quote from the Zohar. Okay, um, they get from one another, or they get. From the from the Torah and from the money, that's a that's the translation of that quote from the Zohar. So now let's see what the Rebbe says about that. Okay. Um, below Rakishana, uh, I'm trying to see what I. This is like a tiny piece of the whole of the overall piece. I'm trying to read. Okay, so actually in the piece the Rebbe asks, like that's so weird. What do what do angels have? <clears throat> what are they giving to each other? Like, what are they getting from each other? What do they have to give? Do they have like a box of chocolates to give to each other? No, right? Do they have even hands? I have no idea, right? Okay. What are they getting from one another? They're getting something that's, that, that's um from the Torah learning and the mamon, the money of Jews. Okay. So let's, so he says, below rat It doesn't just mean that they get from one another when Am Yisrael give each other tzedakah or do good deeds for each other. Right, because that would make sense, right? They get like we. I give to Andy um, a piece of cake, and then an angel in Shemayim is like, "Oh, I'm, you know, I got Keilu like a spiritual piece of cake because Shoshana gave to Andy a piece of cake." Okay, that's like the paradigm. Okay, but he says it's not just when we give each other tzedakah and or do milu chasadim. Rak gam keshesomea ish mitzvah Israel ve'oseh kol ma sheyachol asot that also when we listen to each other, when we listen to each other, when we give each other like a shoulder to cry on, so that's called giving. And that actually causes the angels to give. 
And that's actually called the hallmark, like a higher level in a way, okay? Mm -hmm. Very nice to give each other things. Sometimes we don't have things to give, or we don't have, in the Warsaw Ghetto, they didn't have tzedakah really to give to each other. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have food to give to each other. So what could they give? It's like a shoulder to lean on, a shoulder to cry on, a listening ear, a, a hug, a comforting pat, right? That's what they could give. But that we should think that that's not a real thing to give. And what he's saying is that really the power, the koach of the mafim in giving and receiving from we, from each other is really from that. When we give from our from our hearts and from our like from our souls to each other, okay. Even if there's no actual physical, you know, exchange of stuff. Um, like our hearts break. Or, or a person's heart breaks for it. Like when we hear the stories of what happened right down south, when we see the videos, I mean, our hearts are breaking. You know, Ohad running to his, uh, to his grandfather, right? Or his father, like that, the, his father. So Ohad running to his father, or, or um, you know, Raz and Aviv and, and Garon, right? Their mom going and, and seeing their father and their husband, right? So our hearts break and our, and our blood like sort of freezes in, in, our, in our veins. When we leave Nishbar Oset Shuva Lasem, and it causes our like this broken heartedness kind of causes us to be like, oh, Hashem, either, you know, can you, can you please help, like, help the hostages or thank you for returning those hostages or, you know, the ones that are not back yet, fear, right? Baby fear, like, he needs to come home. Yes. And, our, and every time we see this picture, our heart like breaks and it causes us to like be like, Hashem, like, Ad Masai, come on, get, like, bring him home. Yeah. Um, for them, Okay, that's also like a giving and a receiving. And it and it causes the angels to like give and receive to each other. Um, they get from us basically broken heartedness and chuva. And um you know, and they, okay, basically what he's saying, right? Well, we'll, we'll go on from here, but basically what the, this was like the, the pet up to this talk, which was that like in the time of the war, what could people give to each other? And even now, right? Like what's the, what can we give to each other? We don't always have the right, um, A, we don't always have the right words, we'll say it that way, okay? We definitely don't always have the stuff, you know, to give, like, we, like, like I'm sure all of us wanted to like, I don't know, go and deliver chocolate chip cookies to the Chayalim or, you know, find all those ceramic uh, vests that were, you know, bulletproof vests, right? Like everybody wanted to be involved in that, right? And and not everybody could. Not everybody could. I, I wasn't, you know, involved in finding ceramic vests. I wanted to, you know. So then in my Tehillim saying, so what the Rebbe saying to us is that like that, that's like this, it's like all the same. It's all the same. If we want to give like, if we want to give a hug to our neighbor, that also causes in Shaman like a ruckus because look at these people. They have nothing to give and they're still giving. They're still finding ways to give to each other. And that 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 causes a storm in Shaman. If it causes a storm in Shaman. Next, Jordana. Okay. I don't think it's going to work, but you can try. <laughs> Let's see. 
Yeah, see, that's, I don't know if the phone is the, is the computer connected to, oh, wait, wait, it might be, it might be. Oh, okay, wait, hold on, it's not managed. You have to do, uh, any techies know how to make this, there's the same thing you can do if it says like mirror the, um, This is not the slideshow version. Ayala, wait, do you want to show the video? Ayala, the Zoom girl. Yeah, and then there's a second one. Yes. Yeah. and then people would like throw the ball back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. and like be Oh, there you can do that on the remote. Pick 
So in this week's Parsha, just 
only because she just said that, and I only just just uh just learned to, learned this with uh with some women this morning. Um, that you know in the in the uh in the battle, the the fight, the ma'avak between um Yaakov and the Sar, mm -hmm. the angel of of Asaf in this week's parsha. So the the uh the say actually only because she just said that. I'll just read to you the pasuk thing with him. Uh, all hashkachah okay? So, um, so, uh, Yaakov fights with the angel, okay, and and then, yeah, when his okay, ve'yavater Yaakov levado, okay, he stayed alone, ve'yavek ish imo ad alot hashkachah. Yes, Donna did this this morning. Okay, so I'm just saying that he fought with the people called the Samarak, right? Until the dawn, just like she said, yes. And there's um the the um Sarama. He actually says that the that the um the dawn is like a symbol of of like hope and right future and like things are getting clearer, things are getting better. So. The, the dawn comes after the dark. We all go through this like a million times every single day and in our lives, right? That the darkness represents like um, disconnection and fear and uh, all the, the the scary stuff of the world, challenges. And the dawn represents the, the coming out of that, coming out of that. And uh, I just thought because he, uh, because because Ella just said that, she should live me well, the, um, that, that we should know that also, we uh, we also fight until the dawn. Yeah, that's our question. You can see the dawn. Okay, Jordana. Okay, so that was connecting through hope. This is what I called these things. Okay, connecting through family. So Naftali and um, Rabbi Sarmayer Lau. Okay, if you have not read Rabbi Sarmayer Lau's book, go run to the store and buy it. Oh, go get, go run to the library. Not all. There's one copy. It's called Out of the Depth. It is um. One of the best books you will ever read. Okay. So it's his father. I mean, the current chief is the son of of right. Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau was the chief rabbi of Israel from 1993 until 2003. Um, so he is a survivor. He was one of the youngest uh, survivors in um in um he was in uh, um uh Buchenwald at the end of the war, or he got he got uh, liberated from Buchenwald. Okay, but. Um, basically, he was with his brother Naftali most of the time. Okay, their father gets killed right at the beginning of the war, um, or right at the, uh, the beginning of the roundups. We'll, we'll call it not the beginning of the war, but the beginning of the roundups. They were from a town called Pietrkov. Um, Pietrkov had the unfortunate distinction of having the very first ghetto anywhere. Um, it's also it's also right near um, Pietrkov. Okay, it's also right near Warsaw, on outside of Warsaw. So, um, so, so there was the the, fa the father who was the rabbi of the of the city of Yetzirah. Um, name was Moshe Chaim, Moshe Chaim Lau, um, and so he he gets killed um, right at the beginning of the roundups, and there and and one other brother who's in between um, uh, Rabbi Shaul Mayer and uh, and his brother Nachal. There was another one, Shmulet. He was between them, and um, and he gets killed also right at the at the beginning of the roundups. And the 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 um, Rabbi Shalmeir stays with his mother, 
he's a little kid, he's been able to like kind of hide that she's holding him and, and they're together. And then they, and then um there and then his older brother Naftali comes back from a work camp that he had been sent to. He's eleven years older than Rabbi Israel Mayer. And the three of them were then together. But at some point they separate and they put the women to like on one train essentially, and they put the men on another train and they're sending them away wherever they're gonna send them. And at the last um here, as we were boarding the train, the Gestapo commandant in charge fixed his eye on me, the little boy. Although I tried to keep close to Nafali, he thrust his stick in my face, grabbed me by the nape of my, oh, sorry, wait, hang on one second. He originally went with his mother. He originally went with his mother, okay? Rabbi Mayer went with his mother. He wanted to go with his mother. He was a little kid. He was like seven years old, five, yeah, six years old. So I think by the time they split up, he was already like seven. I think it was like six, maybe something like that. I don't remember exactly the, the the time period exactly, but he was like a little kid and he wanted to be with his mother. And his mother actually knew. She looked around and she saw the strong men are going over there, and the women and children are going here. He's not going to survive. And and she was like, no, he, he has to survive. He has to survive. And she had said to Natali, she said, you have to make sure that 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 they called him um, Lulik. You have to make sure that Lulik survives. Um, and, and essentially, he, it was sort of like drummed in that he was going to be a great rabbi. That he was, he's actually the 39th generation of um, of, of communal rabbi, rabbis in the family. Okay. So that, that was like, so she basically, he had like a, a bag that was a pillow also. It was like a, it was like a pillow in a pillowcase. And, they, and she put, she had put like straps on it and to wear it like a backpack. And they put food in it and clothing, whatever. And when they when they split them up, they put her, the mother and and Lulith on one side, and 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 um, Natali was with the men. And she basically, with you know, she wasn't she was a woman, right? She was not like, and she had been already in sort of 1942 or something like that. So it wasn't like she wasn't well fitted. We call her. She picked up Lulith, and she threw him across the divide between these two groups to. Um, to Naftali, and she said, "Keep Lulik alive." Like that, and 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 basically, Lulik, the way he tells it in the story, said like he's, he's like scratching and kicking at his brother because he wants to go back to his mother. He doesn't want to be split up from his mother. He wants to go with his mother. And he didn't understand at the time. Well, okay, he didn't understand, you know, that she's saving his life this way, right? Okay, so then then um, Naftali tries to like hold on to him, and they're getting onto the train. Okay, as we are boarding the train. The Gestapo commandant in charge fixed his eye on me, the little boy. Although I tried to keep close to Naftali, he thrust his stick into my face, grabbed me by the nape of my neck and shouted, children with the mothers. And he threw me back into a group of about 50 women and a few children, but not where his mother was. As I was being thrown into the first car of this train, Naftali was pushed along with the other men into one of the last cars of the same train. Thus, we were on the same train, but at a great distance from each other. Naftali was worried. He had no idea how many cars separated us. And the promise he had made to father echoed through his head. In the stairwell of our home in Piotrkov, he had sworn not to let me out of his sight and to do anything in order to continue our family dynasty. But it's actually a different time. I'm sorry. It's not like they, she throws him and they, they separate. It's like she throws him, right? He's with Naftali for the next few weeks, months, whatever it was. And then they were actually being sent now to, to Buchenwald. And when they got on the train to Buchenwald, I'm sorry, it's all like coming forward, all around a little bit in my head. But as, 
then they get separated. Go to the next slide. This continues. The train set out on its way, and Naftali had an idea. He and two friends who had been with him the whole way from Piazzakov began to manipulate the handle of the door of their train car until they managed to open it. At the train's first stop, Naftali and his friends slowly opened the door and looked around. Then Naftali lowered himself underneath the car, aligned himself between the tracks, and crawled forward on his elbows to the door of the next car. He pounded on it and shouted my name, Lulik, Lulik. Meanwhile, the train whistled and shrieked, signaling that it was about to move. Naftali quickly crawled back to the car he had just left. Because he had returned empty-handed, he repeated this operation at the next station and the one after it, and so forth, four times, each time returning disappointed. He ignored those who complained of the freezing cold that penetrated the car through the open door and insisted on continuing the mission to rescue me. His next attempt was a success. When he reached the seventh car, the one just behind the engine, again he shouted my name. I was inside the car. I heard my name. I thought I was dreaming. But still, I moved in the direction of the voice. I climbed over and between the bodies, forging a path between the women and children until I fell into the arms of my brother, Naftali. He had managed to open the train car door, the train door using a pin he had modified. I think it might continue in there. I wanted to hug and kiss him, but he stopped me, demanding that I keep silent. He pulled me down under the car. It was night. Thick dark darkness surrounded us, and I could see only his eyes, but I understood the significance of what we were doing. Behaving with extreme caution, I imitated Naftali's movements, crawling rhythmically on my elbows and knees. He counted seven cars, then stuck out his head, pulling me in after him. Two pairs of hands pulled him inside, and he pulled and lifted me into the car. Only after the two friends from Piatrakov had closed the door did we allow ourselves to embrace each other tightly with heartbreaking cries. After a seemingly final separation that we had thought impossible to overcome, we were together again. Um, so, I, my, so what happened after that? They go, they get sent to Buchenwald. Actually, Naftali puts him into a backpack, into the, I think it's the that pillow back. I'm not, I think it's his own backpack, but he basically hides him. It's like, that's how small he was, that he was able to like, basically put him to go into the camp, to go from the train into the camp. He was, he was like, by this time he was like eight. But it was tiny because he was undernourished, very, very undernourished. And he, look at what the next slide is. I don't think it's good still. No, go back. Um, so there, there is actually, um, okay, so what happens? So they go to Buchenwald and they, um, in Buchenwald, he actually gets, there's, there was a, you have to read the book, but basically there was a Ukrainian um, prisoner um, who was, uh, I think he. Had, I think he was like he had access to food. He was a cook. He was that was the, his, his that was his um work was that he worked in the kitchen and he somehow decided that he's going to help save Lulik, and um and he and he he smuggled him basically into a barracks that was filled with non-Jewish children, and um and the barracks that was filled with non-Jewish children that were like political prisoners um they got like a, a bit better food and this Ukrainian prisoner basically um took care of Lulik. He was named Righteous Among the Nations. Um, and he, um, and, the, and we survived. Um, at the very end, they were separated from each other, Naftali and Lulik. Um, so at the very end of the war, he didn't actually know that he had any surviving relatives. Um, and there's a famous, um, there's a famous story, which uh, um, we, we always, we, I almost always tell at Yad Vashem. Um, at, at Yad Vashem, there's a famous, there's a picture um, of, at the end of the war, um, one of the rabbis that liberated Buchenwald, his name was Rav Kirchhoff Schachter, 
Um, he's uh, J.J. Shafter's father. Anybody knows that um, name from New York? Okay, so Rabbi Herschel Shafter, he was a chaplain in the American army and he spoke Yiddish. So he was like one of the first soldiers through the gates of Buchenwald. They, the American soldiers couldn't believe their eyes, you know, when they went to liberate the camps. I'm sure you all know this. They were like astounded by the, the sickness and the death and the, um, the smell and the, the, the putrid, horrific conditions. And um, and he walked in like speaking Yiddish and he was like, you didn't get in, you know, you're free, you're free. Actually, I was uh I, I was at on my Shabbos table. Okay. And my Shabbos table this week, I had a had a I had this, this this very sweet guy um who another guest brought with him. And he pointed, he reminded us that um the Kloisenberger Rebbe, that the Kloisenberger Rebbe survived Auschwitz. And um and he at the end, um I think he was in, might have been liberated from Mauthausen, um, but he said, basically, he said, he said the saddest day of the whole war was liberation. He actually said that. He says it in a, in a, in a, in a, in his accent. He says it, says it. You can hear, actually find him like saying this. Like, I think there's even a recording maybe of someone from saying this, that, that he said, he said the entire time we went through everything that we went through, because we were sure it was Iqbal the Mashifa, that this was, there, there's no way that this could end in any other way except Mashiach. And he said, when we saw the American soldiers walking through the gates of the camp, our hearts broke like they hadn't broken until that point, because this was not what we had expected. It was not not expected. This was not like, it, why wasn't it Mashiach? You know, why are these American soldiers liberating us? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That was really, really, really hard. Really, really hard. We're still we're still working on recovering from that, I think. Um, so um but as out such we won't have to recover from it for much longer. Um so, so Rabbi Shachter was, you know, one of these American soldiers, at least he was, I don't know, he, he understood what was happening a little bit. Um, and he tells the story. Rabbi Hershey Shachter tells the story that he went in and he saw these like piles of dead bodies everywhere. And then he saw this, like, he saw like some, something moving, peeking out from behind a pile of dead bodies. He went over and it was, it was, it was, uh, it was moving. He was tiny. He said he looked like he was four years old. He was like eight, he was almost nine, I think, at the time. I think his birthday was like right after liberation, something like that. But he looked like he was four because he was ridiculously young. He hadn't eaten a meal in, you know, five years. So um, so he so he he went running over to him, Rabbi Shachter. And he said, I fell down on my knees in front of him. And I said, My God, what is your name? How old are you? Like, there were no children. And aren't these killed all the children? So he saw to see a living Jewish child. He was like, "What's your name?" And Lilith, he said, "My name is Lilith." And then he said, "But don't ask me how old I am. Anyway, I'm older than you." And Rabbi Shafter was like, "You're older than me. That doesn't make any sense." And Lilith said, "Can you still laugh and cry like a child? Because I don't remember the last time I laughed, and I don't even think I know how to cry anymore. You tell me which one of us is older." And Rabbi Shachter, as he tells the story, actually a book about Rabbi Shachter just came out. The story is, is in there from his point. I mean, we've been, you know, he told it many, many years ago. Um, 
but um, but it, now it's in a book also. So he said, um, he said he was like blown away because I mean the kid looked like he was four. It was that could be flaw, I mean, for a nine-year-old to say something like that, you know. But he looked like he was four, like a, like a, for a baby to like all of a sudden start like spouting Shakespeare, you know. Like it was like it was like my mind was so crazy that this little kid is saying such wide words. And so he said to him, "I'm going to take you back to America with me, and I'll find you a family, and you'll never go hungry again, and you'll never have to worry about your safety again, and you'll be in America." And and Lilith said to him, "I can't." I promised my mother that if I survived, there's only one place in the world I would go. Heresy child. He actually did come here. Lulik, I mean, Naftali had survived. Naftali was called Tulik. Tulik and Lulik. Tulik, Tulik, Lulik, and Tulik. Um, so, so Tulik had survived, and um, and they were reunited. And uh, and they did come here. They actually got here in 1945, which is almost unheard of, because their father had been married once before. And his wife had passed away, and he had an older son from that marriage, who was their half brother, who had come to Israel before World War II, and so he was able to bring both of them. Um, it was very challenging, definitely, to here to Israel. Um, but he lived here. He lived here. He he he. he actually, tell, when I when I he tells the story that in the book, it's in the book that um, when he was twenty years old, he got married. He married the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. Okay, Tel Aviv then was not Tel Aviv mm -hmm. now. Yeah, a lot of Hasidic Rebbein lived in Tel Aviv at the time. Um, after World War One, many, many of them moved to Tel Aviv. Uh, very interesting. Um, but so he married the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv's daughter, and when he was twenty, Rabbi uh, Rabbi Reblau, and and he said, and he's standing under the chuppah, and all of a sudden he felt like wetness on his face, and he didn't know what it was. Well, a little bit. Cheers. 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 That it was the first time in my life that I remember crying. Right. That I felt on my face. And, and that's really like, that's the part. Like, how do you teach a, a, a nine year old boy how to, how to love, how to feel, how to trust, how to eat more, how to play? You know, that, that, that wasn't part of his life experience at all. Um, he's Kananahar, he should live and be well, Ad, Ad, Ad Mashiach. Um, he's, yeah, 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 he's wonderful. Find any YouTube video of him and watch it. He is a shining beacon of light. Mamash, he's, he's unbelievably inspiring, really, really. And his son now, David, is the chief Ashkenazi rabbi of, uh, of Israel, so the 40th uh, generation. Is Naftali still alive? Naftali is not. Naftali Passoi, he was 11 years older. So uh, Naftali Passoi, Naftali also wrote a book, it's a, it's a hard book, but if you, if you, if that's your thing. Um, uh, um, Naftali, Naftali actually had a very, very interesting life also. I mean, they both are brilliant. He was the Israeli ambassador to the UN um, in, uh, uh, for many years. Um, Naftali La uh, Lau Lavi, he changed his name to Lavi, but he was called Lau Lavi. Um, and uh, called like um, I have to find out. So maybe it's called like crouching with with lions, uh, something like that. Some some something like that. Some some piece of a puzzle. They were still in a camp. They were in they were in a camp. Oh, meaning like why didn't they run away? That's like um so hard to so hard to we have to always when we're talking about the Holocaust we have to remember like where where were they 
right? They were in Nazi-occupied Poland. Like, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. Yeah. The 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 odds about, I mean, and now we know even more because we have so much research, the odds of surviving in Poland as a Jew, like not in a camp, was less than one percent. Um the the there were there were man hunts, there were Jew hunts, literally they literally called Jew hunts by the Polish Polish police. Um I could get arrested in Poland for saying that, but you know, we're not in Poland, thank God. Um but um but but they you're not allowed to you're not allowed to talk about Polish um uh, uh, yeah collaboration and all because um, they did not consider themselves collaborators, they considered themselves victims. They were both. That's the problem. You can be both at the same time. They don't admit that. Do they understand it? It's a different thing. They see them as equal victims of like Hitler and Germany just as yeah. anyone could do it. And, and, and I do want to, like, you know, you know they, they definitely suffered. Like, they were, they were treated unlike any other country, Poland ceased to exist completely. Like no other country didn't have a single, didn't have any kind of representation for their people. Other, you know, Poland was the only, like in France, there was still some kind of like the French people. And then there was like a Magen, kind of like a sheet, like a, like a, some kind of like representation. And then, <laughs> right, non-Poland, non-Poland. So, and, and approximately 2 million Poles um, were killed. Um, they will say 3 million, but uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Except that one, you know, one million of them, because one million of them were Jews, <laughs> so they'll say three million Poles. But you know, the, yeah. the million of that, or a million and a half, really, of um, Polish, like, were they were not killed as um as Poles. Pole. They, they, right. they were three point three million Jews in Poland. They were all like their numbers are all messed up because there was more Jews than that that were killed. Right, two out of three point three million Jews in the original borders of Poland when World War Two, before World War Two. Three million were killed. So, you know, their numbers are like whatever, but two million Poles were definitely killed because they were Poles. So, yeah. Like all the numbers just seem like there's so many. How is that? Like, how are the people not that? How are they? Mm. It's hard for us to, it's so funny because we don't have like access to Google Maps and Google, um, what's called like a Google satellite, right? So but we have, we can't hold in our brain how many people there are actually. Like it's very hard for us. We're like, oh, this is, right? We we can't hold those numbers. So there were, you know, if I say to you, how many people were in Germany before World War II? Yeah, yeah. Or how many people were in Europe? Let's, let's say, let's go that way. Right, not not just millions, but like hundreds of millions. Okay, so just just Germany had sixty something million. Okay, so Europe had three hundred and fifty million people, give or take, a couple of million. Right, like right. So yeah, the Jewish population barely made any kind of. We're not. We are. We're less than point. We're like point oh one oh one Jewish. Right. Right. I mean, we we What did someone say? Yossi Jacobson said the other day. Said something like a um a uh, what did he say? The Jews. The total amount of Jews in the world is not even a statistical event in China. Like China has a billion people. Like we're like we're not even a blip on the radar of like all of the Jewish people. It's the whole world, but. Huh? 
totally make a huge difference. Yeah, so that's the, that's the, uh, great. So let's end on the bracha, okay? Because it's lunchtime. Um, so I'll end on a bracha because Nishama is absolutely 100% true. And, and and I'll tell you, I heard at the beginning something like people were like, but why do they even hate us? Da, da, da. Okay. So they hate us because we're Kedusha. And Tuma hates Kedusha. Okay. Like two ma like magnets. Yes. Two magnets that are alike. They, they like each other. And two magnets that are the opposite. They repel each other. So the, the Kabbalistic, um, like a scientific fact, right? But let's say the Kabbalistic fact, right? That, that, that Tuma hates Kedusha. Tuma means anything that it, it's like something that 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 thinks that it has an independent existence aside from Hashem, and kedusha is something that is um, bottle to Hashem, that serves Hashem, that recognizes Hashem is in charge of the world. Okay, so our kedusha is is like a they feel it like it's a poison, because guess what? We're trying to get them to be better versions of themselves. And, that's always very, very painful for people. Painful for us, all the homer, right? For everybody else in the world. So the Torah is a mirror, the mirror that gets held up. Yeah, the Torah offers an example, a dogma of how a person can overcome themselves and become something great. And that's a lot of work, a lot of effort. Um, and um, and not everybody wants to do that. And so, but that's what the Jewish people represents, you know, at our best. We represent this opportunity to become better versions of ourselves. So Bezrat Hashem, we should uh, hold on to that and be strong with that and be empowered by that and embody that to be the, the best versions of ourselves that we can be because we've got so much cost uh, behind us to help us do that. Bezrat Hashem.